0: This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rolheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FrancisFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect podcast. We are in the middle of season seven. My name is David Dalton. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I teach at Loyola University's Institute of Pastoral Studies, and I write a monthly column for St. Anthony Messenger magazine. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he is the Duns Scotus professor of Spirituality at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and as a columnist for National Catholic Reporter. I'm also here with Heidi Schlumpf. She's the executive editor of National Catholic Reporter. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan and Heidi, as always, it is great to see you all.
1: <laughs> Good morning, David. Hi, Heidi.
0: We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio and extended discussion or interview. If you'd like to hear them, you can go to patreon.com francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Please also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. Okay, listeners, this episode is going to reach your ears The week of the election. And so we're deciding this week to simply talk to one another and sort of take a... We're just going to talk, and
1: we're going to talk about politics, politics civilly, which is at this moment sort of an ironic choice of word. But we're going to talk about our national politics, and we're going to talk a little bit about church politics these days. This is a stressful time for all of us, and I know it is for all of you listening, and we're with you. Boy, are we ever with you.
0: So, Heidi, how have you been doing these past couple of weeks?
2: Things are busy as ever. This is a crazy time for journalists. My whole life is divided into before the election and after the election. And in between, I've had to sneak in my son's birthday. So we had a socially distanced outdoor birthday party for him. And of course, we've got Halloween coming up. So we're making plans that involve PVC pipe so we can send the treats down a tube and stay away from any potential trick-or-treaters and trying to decide if our kids are going to be able to do any trick-or-treating themselves too. So busy, busy time.
0: It is. And for our kids, we are not going to try and trick or treat, but we're double bubbling. So my parents-in-law, my wife's parents live in the neighborhood with us. And so we are socially connected to them. So we go over to their house, they come over to ours, but we don't Connect with anybody else just to keep that safe. And so we're going to do a version of taking the kids over to their house, and they've got several rooms in their house. And so the kids are going to knock on every door of the room, and they're going to get candy from those doors, and they're going to dress up while they're there, and then we're all all going to have dinner together. But it's just, I think that we're on the most cautious side of the fence in that we don't even want to try and navigate anything at all, just given the fact that Halloween, particularly in our neighborhood, is oftentimes a recipe for chaos. And so the thought of trying to kind of control that and social distance that seems a little beyond our ability to cope with this year. So, kind of like you, we're trying to figure it out, but we're on the very cautious side. And, uh, Dan, are you preparing for Halloween? What will you dress up as? <laughs> I'm going to dress up as a Jesuit.
1: Uh, and <laughs> <in> so South- <laughs> it's. You know, I've I've had this uh, for the last several years. I've had an idea for a Halloween costume that I might wear. I'm not going to divulge it here unless any of my students or future students are listening. I've never actually got my act together in time to make it happen. But uh, the idea is intriguing to dress up as a particular character. Into uh, teach for the day in that outfit. So uh, I'll just I'll just float that possibility out there. You know, if we ever return to something that resembled 2019 or before. Other than that, you know, like Heidi, like you, David. I mean, I'm not preparing for Halloween. Otherwise, though, I do enjoy candy, so that's always welcome. I, I've been busy. It's just been wild. It's been a crazy time, um, a very full time, a chaotic time, like everybody's experienced. And those of us who are very fortunate to have a job find ourselves busy with the ins and outs of normal work and then on top of it, given you know the the line of work that I'm in, particularly theology and spirituality, um, Pope Francis coming out with a new encyclical that happened to coincide with a global pandemic and an upcoming election cycle, and at the same time that I'm teaching a regular load, and I had several other major deadlines to. The good news is, I my latest book, I, I submitted the the final manuscript last week. Listeners can look forward to. I think I can talk about it right now. It's it's the working title, the tentative title, but I. Think think it's probably going to stay the same. And this is a a book that's very, very important to me and something that's very meaningful. And the the tragic persistence of police violence of of African American women and men in this country, particularly heightened by the George Floyd killing and the Breonna Taylor killing, among so many others. I think only really emphasizes the importance of this. And this book is a book geared to a general audience, particularly to white Catholics. And it's titled What We Have Done and Failed to Do, A White Catholic's Guide to Racism and Privilege. And so keep an eye out. We'll talk about it more as we get there, but it's a very meaningful, it's always a challenging book to write. And it's one that I'm incredibly passionate about and and look forward to sharing with the world and hoping that it leads to greater conversations, particularly among people who look like us, you know, white men and women, people who, who also identify like us, you know, folks who are Catholics as well. And so, there hasn't been as much conversation, and this is something our Black Catholic sisters and brothers have drawn a lot of
0: attention to over the years. Yeah, there's a lot more to say. I don't want to take up a lot of time, but that's that's been a big deal. Well, Dan, I hope that when that book comes out, you'll be willing to talk to me about that on Things Not Seen Again, because I love having a chance to actually dive deep into your work. I'm looking forward to it, David. Our sister podcast, which is really yours. It's a half sibling, I think, to the Francis effect. So Heidi, how have you been in the midst of all this? I imagine things have been pretty crazy. Have you been finding time to take care of yourself and take care of your family? And how have you been doing that?
2: Great question. You know, we made a trip recently to Wisconsin to see my sister. I'd not seen family in quite a few months. And Wisconsin, as you know, is uh, turning bright red on that New York Times coronavirus map. So we were very careful not even stopping for gas and just visiting my sister's house and being very careful about mask wearing and being outdoors. But I'm finding the inability to connect in person with family and friends really difficult. So doing a lot of connecting you know, in other ways, phone calls, social media. I'm grateful for that. Our family's trying to get ready for the long, dark winter, as Biden has called it. So I think we we know that tough times are ahead. The numbers here in Chicago also are rising. And so we're trying to be cautious and protect everybody's health, our own and, and people around us.
0: Yeah, you just put your finger on it. My wife and I yesterday were talking about how much we miss our friends. And we know that our kids are really feeling that. And my daughter, particularly, every couple times a week will say to me, you know, Papa, I really miss this person. I really miss that person. And for me, I think both my wife and I are introverts. And so we've we've spent a lot of time being okay with just being alone with ourselves and our books. But it's starting to wear on us too, after nine or 10 months of this, to realize I really miss going to breakfast with my friend, John, who is a colleague here in my neighborhood. I really miss getting the chance to sit down and and have conversations with people face to face and we had a, a an issue the muffler went bad on our car so we had to get that replaced last week and as I was driving to the auto repair place, I passed several coffee shops that I like to go to. And I realized just sitting down in the simple act of having a cup of coffee, I miss that so much right now. And I'm looking forward to getting back to something like that in the future, but I, I don't know what that'll look like. Dan, you live in a community with folks. I'm wondering kind of how you and your brothers are doing.
1: We're doing we're doing okay. I think, you know, we talked a bit about this at the beginning. Well actually in some of the special episodes over the summer too. I mean I think the rhythm of religious life Helps to maintain at least a general sense of normalcy, you know, and that's really quite a blessing. I mean, the, it goes back to the Benedictine tradition, even though I'm a Franciscan. But the Benedictine kind of motto that's contained in the Rule of Prayer and Work, this et Labora, that there's a a pattern of life. So that's that's been helpful. That's been good. But you know, your point about passing the coffee shops reminds me of something I, I thought of earlier this week. One of the things that I I haven't really quite put words to, but it occurred to me that I'm mourning that I'm missing is the privilege of spontaneity. You can't just do something on a dime. You can't just decide something like to go and and get a coffee. Like you have to plan for it. You know, do I have my masks? Do I have my hand sanitizer? Is it even open? What's the procedure? And I have found myself not only missing human interaction with people I love and care about and friends and colleagues, I I miss strangers, you know, where everyone is crossing, you know, keeping distant and crossing the side of the street and everyone's, and I, and I appreciate that. And I, and I make my own contribution to that and respect that, but it is, it's, it's, it's an odd experience of isolation. The only other thing I would add that um, has been weighing on me, you know, personally is something that I know a lot of my fellow teachers, yourself included, David probably can relate to, which is you know we're continuing to teach and thank god for the technology that makes that possible but you know it's a cliche to say that it's not the same experience and i think that's true for in, in a lot of ways but one of the things that's also true about that is for the instructor for the teacher the professor that i feel more tired more drained than i would in a normal semester and it's occurred to me that that's because All of, and I don't mean to be so binary about this, but all of the quote unquote like difficult, challenging, or worse things about teaching, the energy kind of sucking elements of it continue. But none of the reward, none of the kind of filling the tank of energy, none of that human interaction or, you know, the engagement in live time and space with your students in the classroom, that's all gone. And that's the most life giving part of teaching for me. And so, you know, I know Heidi, you, you you taught for many, many years as well and probably are supervising your kids doing remote learning or in, or some combination thereof too. So I know you get it. But I, I'm really looking forward to getting back to some more human interaction, even if it's masked interaction for a while. You know, I imagine there's gonna be stages of this.
2: Well, we also had a little bit of uh snowfall here in Chicago the last couple of days and nothing that stuck, but it reminded me how unprepared I am for the changing of the seasons this year. I usually look forward to fall. I love the leaves and the coolness. And this year, I just don't see myself anticipating the seasonal changes in the same way. I think everything relational is just off this year. But being prepared, I think, is the only way to, to think about it. So we're trying to think of ways that we can do creative, keeping relationships connected, especially as we move into these these tougher months when it looks like the coronavirus is going to continue to strike to spike and that we're also not going to see our kids probably going back to in-person school anytime soon. So even just gathering with you two every other Thursday to tape this is is a chance to chit chat with some folks and it really is good for my soul.
0: Ditto. (laughs) That might be a good point for us to take a break, and then we'll get into the chit-chat. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment.
1: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to do, well you're listening, you're subscribing, you know what we do. We're doing something a little bit different today, a little bit more informal, a little bit more conversational, because this is a week unlike any other. And there is a lot of changing information, lots of new data that's coming in that is, for some, exhilarating, for some, terrifying, and for everybody, stressful. So, Heidi, you have access. You know some of this information, the latest polling, at least as of our recording of this episode. Tell us what's going on out there.
2: Yeah, I don't know how many of you out there are obsessive poll watchers like I am, you know. I think part of your like taking care of your mental health is to not check the 538 snake, you know, more than once a day, right? So I I'm following a lot of polls and this morning I saw in the New York Times that a, a new poll is saying that Biden is leading Trump in Michigan by 8 points and the the overall story this past couple of weeks is this lead that Biden seems to have nationally and everyone looking more closely at the states where the battleground states that are going to be very important for deciding the election. Um, there was this crazy poll yesterday that showed Biden up by 17 points in Wisconsin, which was really kind of an outlier, even as polling experts admitted that it was a, a well-done poll. So I know a lot of left-leaning folks who are hoping for a Biden win are very cautious about getting too excited about these kinds of polls. It's also going to be a very strange election day this year in terms of how the election is decided and called by news organizations, with the long lines of people who vote are voting early, the number of mail-in votes, votes and the different ways that some states count those or when they count those and recent Supreme Court decisions about when they can count what comes in. It's not going to be the same in terms of being able to call this election. So certain states are being watched very carefully. Florida, for sure. But what are you guys thinking? Are you as obsessive as I am about following these polls?
1: I'm going to go out on a limb and say yes equal to or greater than in the obsessive category and it's hard to match my boss the executive editor of a of a national publication to be more obsessive about the polls but I do. I am on 538 all the time. I listen now for the last week and a half. The 538 team has been putting out daily podcasts where they break down the polls. and And in fairness, um, just by way of caution, it's not everybody's cup of tea because it's a very nerdy podcast. They're getting into, you know, statistics and analysis and that sort of stuff. But you know, Heidi, I agree with you. I I feel like there are moments, and I and I really do let my feelings dictate how I respond to the stressors of of the time. And so there are times where I just need to shut down. Like there was a point uh, mid-summer where I couldn't listen to another political thing or another pandemic-related thing, and that's when I found the Conan O'Brien podcast, and I just listened to him talking to other brilliant, funny people, and that's the kind of podcast that I needed to kind of clean my mind or to distract me maybe. But I find that as we're getting closer, my own sort of personal anxiety leads me you know, And I think it's probably my workaholic kind of personality. It, it forces me into more information. And I find that soothing. I mean, not that it eliminates concerns that I have that I think are shared by everybody. But I feel, and I'm going to say this uh, with a, a, a big knock on wood, based on what, what we're seeing, I don't think, though it's possible... It's possible that this could take many days, particularly if it comes down to the three swing states of 2016, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. If Trump wins Florida, if Trump wins a lot of the Sun Belt, as has traditionally been the case for Republicans, but there's a lot of question about that right now, and we won't know until we know. But if, for instance, he doesn't win Florida, or if the Biden campaign is able to win some unexpected states or un- typically unlikely states like a North Carolina, Georgia, or Arizona, there could be a path to a decision by midnight on Tuesday. So I, I'm actually, you know, people, and I think it's the right thing to do. I'm thinking of Y2K, this idea that, you know, every no one knows what's going to happen when the ball drops on New Year's Eve until it happens, but the months and years in anticipation of preparation for it, made sure that there was no problem, ultimately, no major problem. And I feel like, and and I'm not a Pollyannish person, I'm not inclined to unfounded optimism. I consider myself, and my friends can affirm, a very straightforward realist. I think it's going to be something between 2016 and 2004. I think by sunrise on Wednesday morning, it will be clear. It may not be what everybody wants. It may not be what any of the three of us may want, but I think that's my prediction unsolicited. No one's asked for it, but I haven't heard a lot of people say that. And I think the data is there to suggest it.
0: This raises something that I've been thinking about, and I find an odd parallel here between what we're going through with the election and Catholicism, and I'll explain what I mean. There are formal rules that help to determine whether or not a person is in communion with the Catholic Church, and there are a lot of formal rules that exist to to help understand whether or not an election has been won by one candidate or another. But then there are also all these informal conditions that surround those rules, these kind of social factors that people oftentimes weigh much more heavily than the formal rules. And so you'll get people on Twitter, you know, saying you can't be a real Catholic if you can't be. And none of those things follow the actual formal rules that determine whether or not a person is in communion with, with the Catholic Church. Nevertheless, people will put a lot of stock into that, and it gets even weirder when we have, the visible heads of the church, the various bishops, participating in these informal kind of conclaves about who's in and who's out—that that can be very confusing to the laity. I think that there's a parallel problem in elections that there there are a lot of very formal rules about when each state is going to count the votes, when they're going to start counting the votes, what kind of votes are going to count, what kind of votes are not going to count. But there's also these informal expectations. We'll have will have a decision by the morning of the next day or something like, And those informal things are not part of the law. There's no formal requirement that we have to have a decision by 24 hours from the start of the election. There's no there are no formalities that that dictate these things. Nevertheless, those expectations are very powerful and they might overtake some of the actualities in terms of the formal limits that we have on how we decide these things. I think you're exactly
1: right. And just in case I'm not clear, I should I should clarify that this isn't based on expectations set from precedent. I'm making this interpretation. I'm making this assessment or a prediction based on the data that is decentralized. And I mean, that's one of the things that's that's important to keep in mind. All of the things that you said that the rules are fifty times over. Every state has different policies, but there are states. Florida is a great example because Florida. You know, Florida, again, a you know, 20-year-old kind of PTSD is settling in after the, the Bush v. Gore situation. Florida, yet again, could be very important here. And one of the things that is distinguishing about Florida is that all of these early, you know, they've had something like 60% of their normal or their 2016 electorate already cast their vote, and, and we're still days and days away from the election day. They count their votes in real time. Their law allows for that. So when when polls close on seven or eight o'clock Eastern time on Tuesday night, Florida may have something like eighty uh, percent or more of the returns in. I mean, so so I agree with you, David. That that there are other things, and we talked on the last episode, or maybe it was the one before. I, you know, pandemic time, everything collapses, but you know there are external factors like potential for violence or interference or you know whatever kind of lunacy trump might bring to twitter or some other medium and i think those are factors that that we cannot anticipate that could have a very serious and consequential impact on the election but i think based on the rules that you're describing the hard and fast rules i have very strong reason to believe that it's not going to be as murky as it might appear if if the polling and the analysis is, is not off by a disproportionate amount.
0: Well, Heidi, I wanted to ask you, because sometimes people who are on the outside of media production will hear things like, oh, the media can be so influential and early reporting about results and those kind of things can be so influential to keep people away from the polls or make people go to the polls. From inside the production process, how much influence do you think that you have as as a person who helps to bring journalism to the public? Do journalists really have that level of control or is that a misperception?
2: Well, at NCR, of course, we're not going to be calling the election one way or the other on Tuesday night, but we do have a lot planned. And we have been very intentional about the coverage we've been doing in this whole fall. The election is very important to our country. Uh, Catholics are very involved, both as citizens, but also as a, a subset of the electorate that's very important in national politics. So we have been covering it quite extensively. And last week, the publisher of NCR, Bill Mitchell, and I teamed up to do a column in which we kind of explained our editorial philosophy and the fact that we have run a number of pieces that are trying to clarify a misinformation narrative that's out there that says to be Catholic means you have to vote based only on the quote-unquote pro-life issue, meaning for someone who wants to try to decrease or change the number of abortions through by making it illegal. So there might be a perception that in some way our publication is pro-Biden, but really we've been trying to provide a corrective to that narrative that's out there. And what I'm noticing in some of the polling, which is interesting to me, is that there's been some move among catholics and specifically among white catholics. So earlier on in, in the fall the narrative or the the story that we saw was that white catholics were still trending pretty seriously for Trump while catholics of color specifically latino catholics were not. Now there has been some movement with latino catholics Favoring Trump, he's done slightly better with them than he did in 2016. And we have a great article by a young uh, Latino woman from Los Angeles, Yunin Trujillo. She also did a Facebook Live for us this week, talking about why that's so. Why some Latinos, despite Trump's uh, really terrible immigration policies and things he said about people of color, why some Latino Catholics might still lean for Trump. She talks about the history of religious authority, about lack of information. I think it really gives some insights. But yet what we're seeing in more recent polls is that there's a decline among some white Catholics. Uh, Trump is still, the latest Pew poll that looks at religious affiliation shows that Trump is still leading, but his lead has eroded significantly in September and October among white Catholics. And I'm just going to say it here, it's women. It's white women finally waking up that Trump does not represent their interests or the interests of their family or their communities. And so I'm going to be hopeful, too, Dan, that women are going to save this country.
1: Yeah. And we should say I appreciate the way you frame that, too, because it's a finally thing. I mean, if we think about women of color, especially black women, they have been. The leading force behind a lot of the the coalition, for instance, that elected President Obama and Vice President Biden, and have been leaders in in getting out the vote. I think of, of course, the tremendous leadership of former State House Speaker uh, Stacey Abrams in Georgia, among others. But yeah, m- more power to white suburban women, as it were, or you know, th- that uh, white Catholic women uh, getting with the program. So all right. People like David and I, though, people who look like us, white men, we're still the problem in many, 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 all too many sectors, including this one.
2: Well, just I would add, Dan, that it's kind of tough on the one hand, there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance of seeing our church so divided as well. So on the one hand, it seems like there's a growing number of Catholics who are either waking up to or asserting more strongly their beliefs about the common good and the need to tie their secular politics to some of the things that have been happening in our country in terms around of the least, who are really been hurt by a lot of these policies of the last three and a half years. On the other hand, we have this right-wing side of our church that is also asserting itself and tying itself ever more closely with the Republican Party and even with the extreme of the Republican Party. I think there are moderate Republicans out there still. And that's very um, concerning. And it's, it's, it's going to take a lot of work, both in our country and in our church, to see where we go from here, no matter what happens on November 3rd.
1: That's such a good point, because as goes secular political dynamics, so goes the American Catholic dynamic. You know, we talked a bit about this in an earlier episode where if you break down, you know, what does the Catholic vote look like? You know, the most determining factor is actually things like education, race, gender. It plays out similarly to non-Catholics in in like categories. But I think the same thing like you're saying Heidi is true. It's so true. I think about this in terms of it's a small, small, small percentage of the Catholic Church that is this kind of alt-right Catholic. You know, it's the people who listen to, you know, these online websites like Church Militant or these YouTube speakers and these others. The the uh, former Archbishop Viganò, you know, or I should say he's still an Archbishop, but he's a disgraced Archbishop Viganò or, or Cardinal Burke and others— they're figures that seem to me analogous to what we see in the kind of secular political alt-right. You know, the Breitbarts, and you know, Church Militant is like a Breitbart. LifeSite News is like a similar sort of thing. And the thing that's so upsetting to me and so frustrating, and I'm sure you share this as well, and I hear it in, in your uh, comments, that they are so such a small percentage, yet they're so vocal, they're so loud, and they're so influential in terms of kind of hegemony you know they're a monolith that's that's just overpowering and because of that non-catholics in particular or other Catholics start to believe that the two or three very vocal Bishops on Twitter who are critiquing the Holy Father who are critiquing you know Catholics who might informed by their conscience vote for somebody like you know Vice President Biden, you know that these people represent Catholicism or an authority in Catholicism that is not true, and so i I don't know exactly how we get out of this structurally, but I think I'm seeing things hopeful signs maybe from people like Jack Dorsey on Twitter where they've tried some things at least I think Facebook is another area. there's more data we can talk about in that regard uh but there's a lot of work that needs to be done about how platforms are used to disseminate and to kind of twist or or shift sort of perspective about what is proportionately representative of a particular group. And I think the Catholic Church, like you say, Heidi, is, is we're as much a problem or affected by the problem as anyone else.
0: This might be a good point for us to take a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back with more of this conversation in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, you know the drill. One of the things in our household my wife Kira and I love to revisit is a stand-up special by John Mulaney. And there's a point in this stand-up special where he talks about the Trump presidency and he likens it to a horse- let loose in a hospital and that it's an unprecedented kind of chaos that you don't quite know what's going to happen and it's a very if, if you if you haven't seen the bit it's on netflix and it's it's worth your time it's very funny But this notion of we don't quite know what the chaos is going to bring us next has been our reality for a number of years now, and it's been especially heightened in a time of COVID. But now it's especially heightened also with the fact that come November 3rd, we're going to begin to have some definitive kind of answers about who will be the next leader of our nation but we don't necessarily know what's going to happen from there. We don't know what's going to happen, first of all, from the interim, from the election to the inauguration, and we don't know what's going to happen after the inauguration. There there are a lot of factors that are completely outside of our control. And so at this particular point in the conversation, we're kind of turning from looking backwards to looking forwards with the caveat that there's a lot that we still can't know. But I just want to start with that image. We've got a horse Loose in a hospital with the internet. (laughs) How do we begin to navigate chaos that can be amplified instantaneously to massive audiences who can be mobilized to begin to have kind of violent reactions to the slightest provocation?
1: I just want to add as an additional endorsement of that Mulaney special. All of his specials, I think, are are brilliant. Uh, but that particular bit is 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 funny, but also painfully true. When he says, "It's not just a horse in a hospital that's causing chaos." At first, everybody's reacting. It's that then they get used to it, and people get used to yeah, well, there's the horse, and every now and then it it kicks over you know a shelf or it it ruins an operation or something like this, and and everyone freaks out. But then everyone's like, "We just got to live with this horse in the hospital, this chaos." I don't know, David. I don't know where we go from here.
2: Well, I know what I'll be doing on on Tuesday. So for example, I have agreed to be part of a a Zoom meeting that's involved through, uh, sponsored both by NCR as well as Commonweal and Catholic Theological Union. So for a couple hours on Tuesday evening, I'll be part of a panel that will be trying to analyze some of what we're seeing or what we have seen that, that day. I had this thought like, Earlier this week, like of total regret that I was accepted, that I had accepted that that speaking engagement because I realized I need to tend to my own nerves and anxiety and what might be happening that night, and I don't want to do it, you know, in front of everybody on Zoom. You know, I have my own fears. Um, I'm remembering back to 2016 and how I felt that evening and the next day. I've heard, for example, we're planning in our workplace a safe space for people to gather the next morning to debrief after the election. I've heard on some of our neighborhood Facebook groups that people are leaving the city on election day because they're concerned about violence. And I can get very caught up in the doom scrolling of what if, what might happen, you know, the possibilities of violence. Asked at the polls or in the aftermath of whatever decision might come. I'm somewhat encouraged that everyone's thinking about this. So again, there's planning. And we had a story just came out uh, today. It'll have been last week by the time this episode drops. But looking at the number of religious leaders who are calling for peace and pointing out the importance of human dignity of every vote counting and that there being free, fair elections, and no violence in the aftermath. Now, sometimes it's bizarre to step back and think we need to even say that here in the United States of America, but somewhat encourage that people are paying attention to this and trying to preempt any possibility of violence.
0: Well, Heidi, that brings to mind something for me. I teach on Tuesday nights, and one of the things that Became very apparent to me this semester was that I, I needed to build a lot of extra kind of prompts to self-care for my students into my syllabus and into my practice. And I have canceled classes for this coming Tuesday night. I've canceled classes for election night because my thought was trying to have a kind of dispassionate discussion about texts while all of this is happening around us was going to be a non-starter and might add to some of the trauma for some of my students and might add to my own trauma. It's a version of what you just said of, why did I volunteer to be on this panel on Tuesday night, on election night? But the other aspect Of that is, you know, one of the things that I've become more and more aware of is that it's not simply an event. But it's the anticipation of an event and the aftermath of an event that needs to be accounted for when we're thinking about people who are vulnerable and people who are in situations of extremity. Now, Dan earlier pointed out that I'm a white guy, he's a white guy. We have a lot of privilege, and so oftentimes we don't notice the vulnerability because our society has geared itself so that we don't have to. And one of the things about teaching students who come from a diversity of backgrounds is I've been able to be able to hear their stories about kind of how they're coping with this. And I'm realizing that there are a lot of communities that have been in deep trauma around this for years at this point, and, and even before the election of Trump, but Trump made it acute, and so that I think is is a, you know, you, you talked about Heidi, people who are now gearing up to leave the city because they don't feel like it's going to be safe, but we, we also have to recognize that there are a lot of populations for whom our city has not been safe for decades, and maybe has never been safe because it's not designed to be safe for them. So these, when we think about Matthew 25, these are these are people that we need to be thinking about and voting in the interests of as we move. Forward. And so, you know, I'm thinking a lot about how this whole situation has changed the way that I think about my job as a teacher. Like, I no longer think about normal in the way that I used to, I now think about the fact that. Students are coming into my class with trauma, and what do I do with that, and how do I account for that, and how do I respond to that as a person who wants to be a Christian, as a person who wants to be a good educator? How do I actually have the ability to kind of wrestle with my students' pain in a way that can still be part of the educational moment and can be productive in that educational moment? I would love to get some thoughts from you, Dan, about that because I'm still figuring this out.
1: Well, I just want to pick up on something Heidi said that that I agree with, um, that I think builds on what, what you were saying, David, about you know who is and isn't considered by those who are in positions of relative power and comfort and privilege. And uh, Heidi mentioned earlier that who would have ever thought that we'd be considering the threat of violence on election day in the United States? And the answer to that question is... Anybody who isn't in a place of privilege, comfort, or power, you know, I'm reminded of five years ago, or, or uh, almost five years ago now, when Trevor Noah, who is of mixed race background from South Africa, and is the host of Comedy Central's The Daily Show, had a very powerful and humorous, which is his job, you know, it's a, he's a comedian, but a brilliant segment where he talked about how Trump's language, his demeanor, his his. Positioning himself, his the things that seem so distasteful to the sort of standard perception of American political leadership was commonplace in many parts of the global South, particularly in countries that know instability, that know dictatorship, that know extreme poverty and corruption. And he was really one of the few people who very publicly, very directly said this, this can happen. It happens all the time. And I'm reminded of something that I watched just recently this week. So when this podcast drops, it'll be last week, The New Yorker did a short about 15 minute documentary where they interviewed foreign correspondents who work in the United States. So from all over the world and what their perceptions of covering the U.S. election, and covering the pandemic, and covering the Black Lives Matter protests, and and, and all the things that have happened so far in 2020. And to a person, they said, is something very similar, that, that the United States had been in the kind of global imagination, an exception to the rule. And I'm not talking about your standard American exceptionalism, we're the best, we're the greatest, this sort of thing. But actually, as a beacon of hope, and I think this is partly why the Nobel Prize Committee awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace to uh, President Obama shortly after he was elected, that it was a symbol to the world that a country as marred by genocide and racism and the history of chattel slavery and things that we have not really come anywhere close to reckoning with could nevertheless elect uh, a leader of color like President Obama, who was such a signal of hope, not only to us, but to the whole world. Uh, I... I think, David, your point is well put, which is I don't think it's surprising. I had a very, I guess intense is the right word. I'm I'm lacking an adjective, a conversation with someone who was not born in this country, was born in a Central American country recently and was talking about the kind of palpable visceral physical fear that he's anticipating he's experiencing in the wake of or is leading up to, to the election and i you know this we're recording this on on thursday october 29th and this morning's episode of the new york times podcast the daily is about a 50 minute long really sobering look at how there's been just uh, record-breaking sales of firearms in this country, and it's not just your Michigan governor kidnapping, plotting types. This is people on both sides. It's it's people who are afraid of the violence that could ensue and a desire to protect themselves. But what's frightening to me is is not only the need that people feel to, to buy and to store firearms, but that now you have all these homes that may not have had firearms in them to begin with that have them, and the statistics are very clear. You're more likely to be harmed or to be killed by a firearm in your own house than you are by somebody from outside. And and that is, there are so many, so many terrible consequences that are flowing
0: from this, and, and I, I, it wor- it's very worrisome. Yeah, David. So one thing that in light of what you just said, I I have talked on this podcast. And I've also talked in print about some of my background and some of my background includes preparation culture and a kind of militia culture. And so I just want to say that a couple weeks ago, I turned to my wife, Kira, and I said to her, everything in my childhood and training right now is telling me, screaming at me in my brain, I need to get firearms. I need to get ammunition. Like that that is very much a part of my consciousness right now, and we have a we have a commitment in our household that we 're not going to have weapons in our household and i I abide by that commitment, nevertheless, even a person who's committed to pacifism. <laughs> I am having such strong impulses right now to go out and to prepare for what might happen. And I'm kind of scare quoting what might happen, but that paranoia is a very real and palpable thing. And so even those who otherwise would be restrained and maybe rational about this can be having trigger moments because there are a lot of triggers in the media. There are a lot of cues that are telling us that the threat is is very real. And particularly for people who have lived all their lives in comfort and privilege, even the threat of threat can be triggering and can cause, as you're saying, kind of cascading violence. So I want to ask the both of you, what do you wish that public Catholic voices and particularly what do you wish that bishops were saying right now in this moment?
2: Well, David, I would just echo what you're saying. And as a person who has never touched a gun and is a very much a pacifist, I understand You know, there are people like us who are also having that urge. It reminds me I lived in Los Angeles around the time of the Rodney King riots in the early 1990s. And I remember thinking at the time, like, then I understood or had some sense of what people felt when they thought they needed some sort of way to protect themselves and their families. That said, I think that we can model, and I don't think we should wait for the bishop, we can model a different way of being in the aftermath of this election. And it you know what what you were describing Dan about the privilege of not being affected by some of the degeneration of political and social you know either discourse and discourse and activity when it is more universalized and affecting everyone it, it is true that it's going to have more impact but i think we can do things differently we're Trying to prepare for that, we have our best and brightest columnists, including you, Dan, writing a series of columns for us on election week to just talk about where do we go from here. And I've been thinking a lot, especially since uh, Biden is up in the polls. And for those of us who, who think that a Trump presidency might be a problem for our country going forward, what if Biden wins? What about the people who are as devastated by that As I was when Trump won in 2016, they matter too. their thoughts and feelings and fears, which have been stoked and, you know, hyped up by people um, in the country and in our church. What can we do to reach out across them? And I'm not suggesting we all just, you know, get in a circle and sing Kumbaya, but we have to take their very real fears into consideration, too.
1: I think that's right. And... I struggle with this, Heidi. I, I struggle with this so much, and and you know you've seen my column already for for that series, you know. And I'll just just hint at one element of it, which is the importance of memory, and it's something that Pope Francis talks about in Fratelli Tutti. It's something that's really important whenever there is nationwide or mass. Violence, mass trauma. So we think about the genocide in Rwanda. I think about what happened in Bosnia and Yugoslavia. I think about you know what happened in El Salvador. I think about what's happened, certainly in in the post-apartheid era in South Africa and, and the famous Truth and Reconciliation Committee there, or our neighbors to the north in Canada, where they're engaging currently in a process that's looking at the nation's treatment of First Nations people. And I think memory is important, and I don't. I think we have a history, a bad history in this country, actually, of very quickly brushing violence, oppression, harm, abuse, subjugation under the rug in order to move forward. And this is something, as I point out in the column, that that President Obama himself did. You know, a lot of things, and he used the phrase, you know, we need to not look backward, we need to look forward. And I think in the short term, there's going to be a tendency to want to do that. And I don't hear you saying that at all, but I... I think it has to be, and this is a truly Catholic answer, it has to be both and. Because I think you're right. I I think one of the biggest problems is our abstracting people. We've, We've turned one another into ideas, placed them in boxes, labeled them, constricted them to their sometimes worst impulses or what we project onto them to be their worst impulses and vice versa. And... You know, I have a really hard time. I have a hard time with that. I think all people do. And, and yet I'm reminded of Jesus's message of forgiving, of, you know, he doesn't say forgetting. And this is something Pope Francis points out, right? It's not forgive and forget. It's for, forgive and remember, right? Forgive and, and reconcile. That requires an honest reckoning with what's happened. I will just say that there's a moment, it's the, the, the tiniest sliver of maybe a lesson to learn, and I don't know exactly what the lesson is, but at the end of The Daily this morning, there's there's a really, I don't want to ruin it for folks, but listen to the whole thing. And when you get to the end, there is a racially charged situation between an African-American man and a white man. The African-American man's being interviewed by the New York Times and the white man is is shouting things at him and there's some escalation. And then how it ends is very striking. And I think one thing that follows is, we have to stick in this together. <laughs> and the one takeaway without giving it away is, you know, to your point Heidi about the fear, the the pain, the insecurity, the concerns, the 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 good desires that people have, perhaps Trump supporters and others because I'm not one of them, so I put myself on the other side of that conversation. You know, those sorts of things are worth acknowledging, but there's also has to be A patience on both sides and and a humility that says, you know, maybe my concerns legitimate as they are to protect my family have led me to support policies or to say things or do things that upon further reflection, I'm ashamed of, or I was wrong about. And I think we have to, all of us have to do that when necessary. And I think all of us have to be open to those conversations. I'll just add one more thing, which is it didn't end well for Jesus, (laughs) it did not end well for Jesus. I think we need to remember that. You know, I think sometimes the sort of atonement soteriologies lead some Christians to think that Jesus was kind of winking the whole time, that he, he. you know, this whole thing was a put-on, that he'd be crucified. But in fact, he was executed as an enemy of the state, as somebody who was perceived by religious and civil leaders as a threat to the status quo or to their power. and And I think, you know, this is something... This is where, like, for us to turn away from that impulse, David, that you were talking about, whether somebody who grew up in a militia prepping kind of culture or somebody like Heidi talking about, like, this, this has never been an interest of mine, and this comes through in this interview on the, on the Daily, where yet there's this desire to defend oneself, quote unquote, with violence. And Jesus tells us, if we're true followers of Jesus, Jesus condemns that outright at every turn. And that's hard.
0: I actually can't think of a better point to end on than that for this segment. So we're going to take a a quick break. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment.
2: Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with David Dalt and Dan Horan talking about the issues that are facing us in our Political life, but now we want to turn a little bit to some of the church politics or church news, as if we didn't have enough going on these last couple weeks between the encyclical and the election. Pope Francis surprised us, or maybe rather the filmmaker surprised us, when there was a release of a documentary t- entitled simply Francesco about Pope Francis that looked at a number of things, but the thing that broke out as news was a comment he had made. In an interview to another journalist that was then sort of excerpted, maybe even taken a little out of context, and included in this documentary in which he expressed uh, positive feelings about the idea of civil unions for same-sex couples. Now, this is a way of saying that he doesn't believe same-sex couples should be sacramentally married in the church, but should have some legal protections with civil unions. This took off, went viral, um, we had a lot of reaction, even from secular media. We were kind of going crazy trying to—we didn't think it was as so much new because the Pope had said these things before, and, and, and that was probably not the best news judgment on on my part because then we were playing catch-up. But it, it, I think it has implications for the church and was spun initially uh, by a more conservative Catholic website to try to be an anti-Francis to stir up some anti-Francis sentiment, but at the same time it's given hope to some people who maybe hadn't heard the pope say these things before. What do you guys think about this? Did it take you by surprise or no?
1: No, not really. <laughs> I mean, in in that sense I agree with our colleague Josh's reporting, you know, the first piece NCR published had a headline to the effect of this is no news in a way, because uh, Pope Francis had spoken out as Archbishop in, in Argentina, and then this clip that was included in this recent documentary actually was filmed last year. And so th- this is this is on the one hand, it's true to say that, that it's nothing new. On the other hand, I think I was surprised by it's not every day that the New York Times sends out news alerts about something the Pope says in passing, as it were, in a, an Italian documentary. And so I think... Yeah, I was surprised by by the reaction, but I was very heartened as as the days went on to see the reaction of LGBTQ Catholics and how significant it was that the secular media, in particular, was was reporting on this. And I'm reminded of something that my friend and, and a, a past guest here on the Francis Effect, uh, Father Jim Martin of of America Media, the Jesuit you know, has said, and he's done a lot of uh, LGBTQ advocacy and work on behalf of ministry to gay and lesbian and transgender people. And he said, you know, what's significant about this too is its global reach. The Pope is making a statement and, and there are places in this world like Uganda, for instance, where people could be put to death for being identified as as gay or lesbian. And similar sorts of things are happening in places in Eastern Europe, and I think, for instance, of Poland, where a number of the Catholic bishops are in cahoots with very far-right civil leaders who are calling for the criminalization of homosexuality and homosexual acts and so forth. And so, you know, they're feeding into this bigotry, discrimination, and violence. And so to hear the Pope say this, it should unsettle in a good way, some of these bishops who are dehumanizing their sisters and brothers, and that's including in the U.S. I mean, Cardinal Dolan was quick, or at least somebody in his office, quick in an official capacity on the Archdiocesan website to effectively not condemn Pope Francis, but to push back. And there were a number of individual bishops who've done that as well, including in Bend, Oregon, among other places. And these bishops are out of line. I mean, I don't mean because they disagree with something the Pope says. And if I may just seemingly digress for one second on an important issue that has been misappropriated by certain bishops in the U.S. context, and this is the Church's teaching on religious liberty. I think what Pope Francis is talking about is actually an affirmation of the Church's truest teaching on religious liberty that recognizes the individual kind of conscience and and the right that people have to exercise their faith and to not have that Kind of impinged upon by a, a civil government and the in the american so called American experiment of the separation of church and state was sort of the model for this worldwide in the in the eighteenth uh, century and it was something that the Catholic Church condemned until the second vatican council and so now it 's interesting how, in the u s context certain bishops have cried infringement on religious liberty when it 's their interest to promote oftentimes decisions, policies, laws that infringe on other people's free exercise of their religion or choice to embrace no religion. But in this case, I see Pope Francis making that demarcation, Heidi, that you talked about between sacramental marriage and civil rights that protect the common good and the inherent dignity and value of all human persons. That distinction is an upholding of the church's teaching of religious liberty. And bishops, priests, religious lay people who don't get that need to do some study.
0: Well, and I, I want to echo what you're saying, Dan. I've talked before about the fact that my wife, Kira, when she was an editor at U.S. Catholic, she would get communications from the USCCB, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, very, very quickly on certain issues like abortion or like quote-unquote religious liberty, but there would be absolute silence when an African-American was killed by police or things like that. So there's a disparity in, in the response of the bishops. There are certain issues where they are very, very quick to speak out publicly, other issues where they are very reticent to speak out publicly. And we've talked before about even the language that they choose to use when they speak out can be very coded. And we don't have to go down that rabbit hole, but just to be aware of the fact that the the bishops are choosing their their voice wisely in the public sphere right now. Uh, But I want to also respond to an earlier question that you asked, Heidi, and that was, what was the response and was this expected? I did not expect that Pope Francis would be declaring in this way or that this would be coming out at this particular point. And frankly, I found it to be amazingly liberating and what do i mean by that i have been wrestling because i have connections to people who identify as lgbtq plus both within my family and also in my in the student body of people that i teach in my in my circle of friends uh, it's a very personal issue for me on a number of levels and i've been thinking about how as a catholic i need to be positioning myself publicly on this issue. As I begin to have a higher profile, this has been a real matter of prayer and kind of wrestling of conscience for me. What are my obligations here? And to have the Pope say these things declaratively in in ways of, at least of what his position is, even if he's not speaking ex cathedra, even if he's not making necessarily official doctrine for the Church in these statements, nevertheless, the fact that he's willing to take a public stand was really helpful for me in thinking about I can take public stands on this, and I can I can speak my conscience on this in public, and that's been incredibly liberating.
1: If I can just add two things, David, to that point, because you're spot on. One is, and, and Heidi knows this so well, and, and our colleague Josh does too, if the Pope did not agree with the way that the coverage has been presenting his statements, there would have been a clarification from the Vatican press office, and that there has been none seems to suggest that... He's at least implicitly, tacitly approving of what has been presented. The second thing is, like you said, you'll hear some people equivocate and say, well, he's not changing the church's teaching about marriage or about same-sex acts or these sorts of things, blah, 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 blah. And yet, let the record show that John Paul II... Also didn't change church teaching when he advocated for democracy in places like his homeland of Poland and expressed solidarity with the Solidarity Movement against communism. So I think there are meaningful, consequential implications that follow from a pope's clear moral leadership in areas like this in the civil sphere.
0: I just want to add one thing to to call back something that I said in an earlier segment. I talked about formal and informal methods of commentary and formal and informal methods that are used to sort of determine who is and what is Catholic and what is not and who is not Catholic. You mentioned the response of Cardinal Dolan. It was actually the Archdiocese of New York's website that promulgated this message, But if you go to that message now, which is a a piece by Ed uh, Mechman, it says, quote, an explanatory note to clear up some confusion. Some people have described this blog post as an official statement of the archdiocese. That is incorrect. But as I look at this page, I'm looking at this blog post on a page that in the top left corner says Archdiocese of New York. And so we have moments where Formal rhetoric is used to create things that are not formal in terms of their teaching and their pronouncement. Nevertheless, they're perceived by the laity to have formal power. And so when you have in the name of the bishop or in the name of the archdiocese, someone saying, oh, the pope is wrong, that creates tremendous confusion, maybe even scandal amongst Catholics.
2: Well, David, it's interesting to hear your reaction, because I think it was a common one of people at least initially feeling like a church that has a reputation for not being open or very accepting of LGBTQ people to have this person at the top say something that seems at least to be some movement the cynic in me had had a little bit of a you know too little too late kind of reaction but it was helpful for me to hear from other people who had a different reaction it strikes me as really i think it was coincidental in terms of this documentary being released now but having been worked on in the and the clip being from an interview quite a ways in the past. And there's a whole intrigue about how that clip ended up in that documentary and whether the Vatican or the Pope even meant meant for that to happen. But it strikes me as a little bit coincidental that this comes out at a time when we see the nomination and confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett being pushed through to the Supreme Court and a number of LGBTQ people being very concerned about how this might affect their rights going forward about uh, civil marriage and about other things. So to have this come out you know, during that same time strikes me as possibly maybe a little Holy Spirit at work and gives me some hope, maybe tied in with, depending on how the election goes, that maybe Catholic voters or maybe the Pope saying these kinds of things and some movement on LGBTQ rights. What if the church were perceived as on the side of people who are oppressed, people who are, are not in power? Wow, wouldn't that be cool?
1: Well, and it's been the case historically that the church has oftentimes not been on the side of the oppressed until they are. And I think about condemnation of the slave trade. I think about, you know, the, you know, it took 2000 years. Until we got to the millennium year, where John Paul II formally apologized for Christianity's role in anti-Semitism, right? You know, we could go on. We could we could go through the whole litany, and, and it's you know we have enough to worry about without rehashing that. But it's these are important things to remember. And David, to your point about the Archdiocesan website, I think that's exactly right. It echoes what I was saying earlier about the Vatican press office is very quick to clarify things that Vatican officials or the Holy Father himself has said or, or implied or spoken extemporaneously that needs to be quote-unquote clarified and that there hasn't been said something. And likewise, Cardinal Timothy Dolan is the Archbishop of New York. He is ultimately responsible for everything on the Archdiocesan website, and he surely knows about this, and that it's still up, even with that caveat, is is an implicit imprimatur on his part of it. It is what I like to call idea laundering. He doesn't want to put his name to it, though he said comparably terrible things, in my opinion. Nevertheless, he's obviously approved of this. He at least authorizes it to remain up on the
0: website. And I just want to say Heidi I'm so glad to hear you talk about Holy Spirit timing I think that sometimes there's a perception amongst those that are not involved in media production that these things can be very quick and very reactive and some some media organizations are designed to be very quick and very reactive but a documentary goes through a lot of processes and there, there's a lot of time involved in sort of deciding what footage goes in and the the notion that somehow a documentary that was slated to drop would necessarily Necessarily be reactive in the way that some other news organizations are reactive. I don't think that that's the case. I really do think that the production process of something like a documentary is more an example of what we might call the Holy Spirit's timing, not someone being kind of trying to get a gotcha in right before the election or a gotcha in as a reaction. So I really appreciate you framing it like that, because that's oftentimes the way that I like to think about these sorts of things as well. And I'm right there with you in terms of this kind of idea laundering. I hadn't heard you use that term before, Dan, but I think that that's spot on. And again, it leads to a kind of soft magisterium. It leads to a kind of way in which the, the church benefits from these extremists who are out there kind of making positions, the church doesn't necessarily, or the church leaders don't necessarily have to claim that position. Nevertheless, they benefit from the fact that these extremists are out there taking a strong position and scaring Catholics in the laity about whether or not their salvation or the salvation of those that they love may be in jeopardy.
1: But I think there are other parallels that we can we can identify that tie together our theme for this podcast episode which is parallels in the secular sphere and in the catholic religious sphere. What I mean by this is people like Cardinal Dolan, people like Bishop Barron have entertained a lot of the kind of rhetoric or of that you know under the auspices of raising questions or providing clarifications about things that suit their ideological interests that are not always in keeping with the Holy Father's pastoral leadership or with the church's actual teaching about things or it's nuanced in such a way to suggest and defend a perspective of their choosing. And they have, in both cases, I would say aided and abetted, kind of independent thinkers, you know, these groups, some of them very extreme. We've mentioned them before, the church militants of the world, the life site newses, these independent groups that fancy themselves as Catholic or more Catholic than the Pope, quite literally in some cases, they propose. And it's all fine and good until they then become the target of these monsters unleashed. Right. It's the Frankenstein syndrome here. The same thing we've seen play out over the last four years. Uh, you know, you see it with with Senate Leader McConnell. You see it with people like Senator Lindsey Graham. You see it like a lot of other people who may at first have have mocked President Trump at the time, candidate Trump, and then when he was elected, cozied up and aided and embedded not only him but a lot of people in his base. And now we're seeing the you know the fact that some of the these same ideologues and others have gone after them and now they're concerned about it now they're defending themselves now they're upset about it but i once you open pandora's box you can't get all the all the chaos back in and so this is where i think you know i don't envy our brothers who are in the office of bishop in in the church that is a very difficult job and it's something i know very well from my own scholarship and teaching but with you know as we also know with what comic book is it, you know, with, with Spider-Man, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Isn't that the Spider-Man line that people sometimes mistake for a line of Jesus's? I think the gospel analog is, you know, to the, to whom much is given, much is expected. That's the parallel. But whether it's Spider-Man or the gospel of Jesus Christ, either way, the truth is there. And that is, you know, you have to make hard choices and you have to take the risk of leadership. That might mean stepping out to condemn, to clarify some of these positions, even for even with people that seemingly support some of your own ideological interests. I think of one example, just to throw it out there, which everybody knows about, is the, the persistent, egregious case of somebody like Father Frank Pavone. I mean, this guy has been attempted to be reigned in at times, but for so long, he had the support of a lot of bishops who saw him as a so-called pro-life warrior. And then he went way too far, so extreme as to desecrate a consecrated altar with the remains of, of an aborted fetus. I mean, it's, it it pains, I can't even say it, you know, clearly I hesitate because it's so disturbing and so offensive. And yet there are people who still cozy up to him. Right. So, or he'll turn his, his own attacks on certain church leaders. So all that is to say, I I think there are parallels, you know, people have not learned their lesson.
2: Well, you know, Dan, as a journalist, I'm inclined to err on the side of free speech and and let people say what they want to say. You know, in the church, I know that's a little bit different. But I guess what I would say is that there are ideologues on the right and the left, and in our church, on the right, they have a little more power and money. But what I what I'd like to see is as we move forward after this election and into 2021 is that we go for the more complicated message of our faith, which is neither right nor left, Democrat nor Republican, and we can all be challenged going into the future.
1: I think that's right. Yeah.
0: I think that's a good point for us to end on. And please know, as you're listening to this, if you're listening to this before the election or on the eve of the election, you are in our prayers and our nation is in our prayers, and we hope that you will be praying as well. Uh, Heidi, Dan, I'm always glad to catch up with you. Thank you both for your time today. It's great to see you. Great to see you too, David and Heidi. All the best.
2: So it'll be a fun next episode. (laughs) We'll figure it all out.
0: The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at various remote locations around the Chicago area. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout-out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod pod.com, And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francis.effectpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. And if you're here for the first time, welcome. We have so many episodes you can go back and listen to all for free on our website, francisfxpod.com. I'll be back with Heidi and Father Dan in two weeks. We look forward to you joining us, and thank you for listening.